for the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Um, in this capacity, Ashley works with the 18 member organizations of okay. CCADV around the I state, um, doing uh, outreach to health professionals across the state and helping health professionals like us um, address issues of intimate partner violence in their clinical settings. Uh, Susan DiVietro uh, is um, uh, one of our own at Connecticut Children's. She is a research scientist in the Connecticut Children's Injury Prevention Center. Um, she got her BA from Lehigh University and went on to get a PhD at University of Connecticut in cultural and medical anthropology. So she's a PhD anthropologist, very different background, but IPV has been a focus of her work life since her time in graduate school and remains so at our Injury Prevention Center. I've had the pleasure of collaborating with both of these speakers um, through our Children's Center on Family Violence, which is a program of OCCH here at Connecticut Children's. And they are true experts in the field and I'm looking forward to hearing from them today. All right, good morning. Thank you for coming. I'm Susie DeVitro. Um, that is not the right thing. One second. Um. Sorry. Okay. Why does it keep going back? I'm confused. Sorry. <laughs> Strange. There's a PowerPoint here. means I'm going to go through it at warp speed. So. Do you have it? Yeah, do you have it out of? the first two in a loop. Yeah, that's what I think it's stuck. Yeah. I think it's stuck on a loop. I'm a research scientist at the Injury Prevention Center. Thank you so much for coming today. A um, couple of learning objectives. I'm going to kick us off to start um, with giving you some background about intimate partner violence, domestic violence, um, and talk about some of the correlates, some of the health consequences for um, adult victims and then also for children that are living in a home that's characterized by domestic violence. And then I'm going to turn it over to Ashley to talk um, about some of the tools and interventions that we recommend using. Oh my gosh, come on. Um, so this is going to be a challenge, apparently. I guess I'm uh, going to just not use my slides. Um, so I'm going to just use the slides looking like this, I guess. So injury partner violence is a pattern of behavior where one partner tries to control or dominate the other. Now, what might stick out to you about this definition um, is it doesn't actually include physical violence. Most people, when they think about intimate partner violence or they think about domestic violence, what they think of is the physical assaults, um, because that's what's most obvious and that's what we generally take for granted as intimate partner violence. It's really important that we understand um, the control aspect of IPV because um, your patients are being controlled by their partners and whether or not it rises to the level of being physical, it's having a direct impact on their lives and on their health and safety. So, I worked, have worked with a lot of victims of domestic violence throughout my career. And many times they said, well, 
you know, at least he hasn't hit me, right? At least he hasn't touched me. And meanwhile, so many aspects of their lives have been controlled and impacted in really horrendous and terrible ways. Um, but they didn't think it really counted as intimate partner violence because it wasn't physical. Um, the reality is that those emotional wounds, those psychological wounds that get left behind as a result of intimate partner violence can take very, very long to recover from. And some of them can be impossible to recover from. So we need to be paying attention to all forms of intimate partner violence, not just the physical forms. And often those non-physical forms of violence, so the emotional abuse, so things like belittling, being constantly jealous, gaslighting, um, threatening, intimidating, all those things, um, those can escalate to physical violence. Um, and even if they don't, they can still really wreak havoc on people's lives. And so it's important that you know that it counts, even if it's not physical assaults. Um, emotional abuse, so belittling, threatening, isolating a partner. Um, sexual abuse, so this includes things like um, re reproductive coercion, pregnancy coercion, forcing someone to get pregnant, me uh, messing with their birth control, forcing someone to get an abortion. So really taking control away from their re reproductive capacity. Financial abuse, so things like not letting a partner get a job or maintain a job or keep a job. Um, technological abuse, um, these are things like stalking your partner through technology, tracking a partner. It used to be, even just a few years ago, you had to be pretty savvy in order to use the technology to stalk or isolate or intimidate your partner. And that is just not the case anymore. It is so easy to use technology this way now that you do not have to be technologically savvy. You don't really, you can do this with just having a phone. You could um, stalk your partner using technology. Um, assaulting, threatening, or stalking an intimate partner is a crime in the state of Connecticut. The other thing that I want to talk, that I just want to mention about this is that um, intimate partner violence is a pattern, and generally the pattern is that it gets worse over time, right? That's what we know, is that it does get worse over time. Um, okay, let's see if this goes to the next slide. Oh, it does go to the next slide. That's a fun treat. Okay, um, so prevalence, um, one in three women, let's say that again, one in three women is victimized by a current or former partner, one in three. That is a lot of women. It's one in seven men. Um, the one in seven men estimate, is an underestimate all the barriers that exist for women to disclose violence and to get help and to get connected to services. The barriers that exist for women, they are much higher for men. They're, those barriers are humongous for men. So for men to reach out and get connected to services and even disclose as a victim of violence is really, really difficult. So I want you to take that one in seven number with a grain of salt. And I just want to backtrack a little bit. I will throughout the presentation be primarily using female pronouns for victims and male pronouns for perpetrators. I want to acknowledge that anyone can be a victim and anyone can be a perpetrator. However, the vast majority of intimate partner violence is with a female victim and a male perpetrator. So I don't use gender neutral pronouns because I don't want to hide that fact. I want that fact to be really obvious and I want us to confront it. So I don't use gender neutral pronouns because I want us to be aware that most of the time what you're going to see and what is happening is violence that is inflicted on women and on children by men. However, there is a lot of IPV also within the LGBTQ community. There is an extraordinary level of violence in the bisexual and trans community as well. So we have to be aware of that. One in four teens is harassed or abused through technology. Again, it's getting very, very easy to use technology this way. You do not have to be particularly computer savvy to know how to use your phone to stalk, harass, and intimidate someone. In the US, three women a day are murdered by a current or former partner, three a day. In Connecticut, the average is about 12 to 13 per year, which I'll get to in a moment. Most disturbing for us is how many of these victims um, who were murdered by their partner had been seen in a healthcare setting prior to their murder. So we really look at these cases as missed opportunities. So women that were, they were not screened, they were not connected to services, and they ultimately were murdered by their partner. Okay, um, so the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence, so we have Ashley who works for them. Um, they, this, these are the numbers. So we actually live in a state that has a really comprehensive system for victims of violence, and that is through CCDB, the coalition. And I just wanted to show, share with you some of the numbers of, um, for fiscal year 2019. So almost 40,000 victims were served by this, and the vast majority of what these agencies do is um, calls to the hotline. Most people think about um, domestic violence services or IPV services as just a shelter. So if I'm ready to leave, that's the number that I call. And that's just a tiny sliver of what they do. Now, it's a really important part of what they do and having that emergency shelter is absolutely critical to the work, but it is a tiny sliver. So one of the things that we want you to know about and be empowered to do is to make a referral to services for much more than just 
fleeing. Most of the time, and I'm also a trained advocate, we're answering the phone, we're doing safety planning on the phone, and we're talking people through, how can we keep you safe today? How about tomorrow? Maybe let's talk about this weekend and how can we increase your safety? So people need to know that the services are available. Most of the time, the people are unaware that we have all, this stuff, all these things that are available in Connecticut. And so they're going through this process that's really dangerous and challenging by themselves without the support of the experts that we have in our community. So one of the great things that Connecticut Coalition does is they do a fatality review. So every two years, they look at all of the people in our state that were murdered in the context of intimate partner violence. And the review is really about what went wrong, like what, what system failures happened made it so that this person ended up getting murdered by her partner. Um, and overwhelmingly, it is women, but also men do get murdered by their partners in the context of intimate partner violence. 2018 was a particularly um, bad year. We had 18 homicides. Usually we're about 12 to 13. So we're hoping that that was just a blip and it doesn't, it's not a start of a trend. Victims ranged from 21 to 87 years old. So this cuts across all ages. It cuts across all ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses, sexual orientations. And one of the really, the truly troubling things about that was learned during this fatality review was that most of the women that got murdered had not connected to services at all. So what that means is that they're going through this process and often these murders happen when a victim is trying to leave or making those first um, steps to try to end a relationship. They're going about it on their own without a safety plan and without the expertise of the people in the community that do this day in and day out and could potentially increase their safety. Another troubling part of the last fatality review was that all, of the, all but two of the women that were murdered um, either had an infant or were pregnant at the time of their murder. We'll get to that in a moment. Okay. So what happens when you're a victim of intimate partner violence? Well, there are some fairly obvious physical injuries. That's probably what you think of when you think of intimate partner violence. Um, so broken bones, lacerations, traumatic brain injuries, those kinds of things. Um, but then there are the indirect impact. And that is the living in a state of chronic fear and in a state of trauma and how that wreaks havoc on all of the systems of your body. So this is a dose response. So the more severe the violence, the more frequent, the longer the relationships last for, the more um, intense the impacts are on their on overall health and well-being. So victims of IPV have higher rates of heart disease, cardiovascular disease. Um, I always forget my percentage. They're 80% more likely to have a stroke, 70% more likely to have heart disease, and 60% more likely to have asthma. So these are things that you wouldn't necessarily associate with intimate partner violence. You probably don't think, oh, this woman's having an asthma attack. I wonder if she's a victim of violence, right? That's not generally what we go to. But it's really important to be aware of how closely connected our relationship is to our health, right? And so we need to be aware that the things that people are coming in that you're seeing them for could potentially just be an after effect of the relationship that they're dealing with on a daily basis. Gynecological problems, um, victims of violence are much more likely to have sexually transmitted infections, urinary tract infections, um, painful intercourse. We know victims of violence have more sex. It's usually for sex and they also have um, much higher risk of HIV. Um, intimate partner violence is now seen as both a cause and a consequence of HIV. Gastrointestinal problems. Um, if you think about what happens to your GI tract when you're living in a state of chronic fear and anxiety. So um, all of the damaging effects of that GI issues, um, ulcers, fibromyalgia, PTSD, so mental health problems, anxiety, depression, suicidality, um, sleeplessness, substance misuse is very closely tied into IPV. Um, this is, there's a relationship there. Often it's a way to self-soothe. We know that victims of violence are much more likely to drink regularly um, and to misuse substances. Okay, so I just want to point out a couple things about strangulation. Now we have a whole separate training that is just about strangulation, but I wanted to highlight it here because the scary thing about strangulation is that how many victims of violence have been strangled by their partner? And it really is a huge red flag for fatality. Um, the odds of being murdered by your partner go up by 750% for victims who have been strangled. Um, often victims will black out and so they wouldn't necessarily know. 70% of the victims in the study um, thought that they were going to die as a result of this strangulation. And the scary part from the perspective of a healthcare provider is that often there are no visible signs. So you wouldn't necessarily know that someone had been strangled. The other scary part is that you can have really horrific consequences of being strangled down the line. So you can have injuries that don't manifest until after the strangulation happens. Um, 
but again, they're only 50% had any visible signs of strangulation. And so if you don't ask someone, if someone has put their hands on their neck, you won't necessarily know. Um, so it used to be that we thought in terms of the children that were in the home, in a violent, in, in a violent home, that it wasn't until they were a little older and could really understand the dynamics of a relationship that they would be impacted by that violence. We now know that really the impact starts even before these children are born, right? So we actually have a study right now that we're working on with Hartford Hospital looking at what happens um, during fetal development as a result of exposure to intimate partner violence. And what we know is that really all of the indicators of a challenging pregnancy um, are attributed to IPV. So 43% of maternal deaths were attributed to partner homicide. It's actually the biggest killer of women, pregnant women is intimate partner violence. And it does not always get screened for, whereas it kills more women than preeclampsia or gestational diabetes. Um, and those things are routinely screened for. So all of the outcomes that you can imagine, so low birth weight, um, preterm birth, um, miscarriages, all those challenging pregnancy indicators are associated with intimate partner violence, which shouldn't be too shocking, right? So living, if you're pregnant and you're living in an environment characterized by violence, um, it can be very difficult for the mom and it can also be challenging for fetal development. So as I mentioned, um, women who experience IPV are much more likely to develop postpartum depression. And again, it's the leading cause of, of, um, of death for pregnant women is intimate partner violence. And, it's just, just, and I just put the picture up there from Dublin um, just to indicate that this isn't just a phenomenon that happens here. It's a national, in, international phenomenon and epidemic of intimate partner violence. So intimate partner violence also intersects with all of these other social ills. Um, we know that many of the 57% of the arrests in the state have children present. And now how the, each individual police officer um, interprets children present varies quite widely. Um, but these children are being exposed to violence and they're also being exposed to the act of their parents being arrested, which is also traumatizing. Um, it also intersects with DCF and with ju the juvenile justice system. So this is why we see pediatric providers as really the front line for addressing intimate partner violence, because you really have the opportunity to be talking to moms, talking to your patients and getting in there so that you can have an impact um, so to help the children that are growing up in environments that are characterized by violence. So between 80 and 90% of children living in homes where IPV present know about the abuse. And one of the projects that I'm working on currently um, I taught doing these long interviews with women who have been victims of violence, who have children. And they always tell me that, you know, the kids were sleeping or they didn't really know, or they were at school. And then when you actually talk to the kids, they all know, they all know. Kids are perceptive, they know what's going on. And if you think about, even if they're not in the room, if they're in their bedroom and they're just hearing the chaos of a fight or an argument, um, that can also be really scary. Um, or if they come home from school and their whole place is trash, also very scary and damaging. Um, there is a strong connection between um, abusive partner and abusive children. So for men who abuse their partners, they're also very highly likely to abuse their children. Now, way back in 1998, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out this statement um, acknowledging that the best thing we can do to address child abuse is talking to women about the violence in their relationship. That was a long time ago, right? More than 20 years ago. And I'm hoping that we are moving the needle forward and really doing something with this work. Um, I hope we are. Okay. So some of the impacts on children, um, short-term impacts, things that you might see develop, depending on developmental stage, the younger they are. Um, so they could have sleep problems, nightmares, difficulty concentrating. Um, they, could, they could be presenting as um, a child that's hypervigilant um, or that is um, reporting on lots of stomach aches or headaches that you can't necessarily see a cause for. Regression and development, we um, did some interviews with women that had been staying at Interval House, and there was a woman that was really perplexed because her child, who hadn't been wetting the bed in years, had started wetting the bed again. So this is like a clear indicator of some um, regression on those developmental competencies. In the long term, um, again, all those adverse consequences, um, so increased morbidity, problems in school, um, becoming ju juvenile del delinquency behavior, drug use, they're more likely to attempt suicide um, and then also be involved in juvenile justice. So if you think about it, um, when you look at the impact of living in a violent home or living being exposed to intimate partner violence, it's really our brains responding flexibly to that environment, right? So um, 
our brains are taking in the information. We have, we're born with these plastic brains. And if you're growing up in an environment that's secure and safe, as a toddler, you're able to sort of toddle out and explore your world and see what's out there. You look back, you have a secure base, you have a caregiver that's looking out for you so you can continue to explore and develop all those neural networks. Um, if you're living in an environment that's characterized by violence and harsh, you don't have the opportunity to explore your world because you're constantly anticipating that next um, violent episode. So really it's our brains responding adaptively to the environment that we're in, but unfortunately for those children that are growing up in this harsh environment, it sets them up for all kinds of consequences down the road. However, we also know that children are are resilient. And so if you can get in there and get them connected and get them linked up to an intervention that they have the capacity to really recover, but you have to get in there. Okay. So one of the other biggest risk factors for intimate partner violence is the cycle of violence. So growing up in a violent home is the strongest risk factor for ending up in a violent relationship as an adult. Um, boys, boys who are exposed to IPV are more likely to use violence. They're learning what those relationships look like from what they see their parents do. So they're learning that this is what a relationship is supposed to look like, supposed to feel like. Um, we also know that there's a really strong connection between various forms of violence. So between child abuse or child maltreatment, elder abuse, domestic violence, and animal abuse. And actually we have some new legislation in the state of Connecticut that's really groundbreaking where we're cross-reporting animal abuse. So the Department of Agriculture is reporting animal abuse where there's children present to the Department of Children and Families. And the Department of Children and Families is reporting child abuse when there's a pet present to the Department of Agriculture to try to really handle this link. Now we know that we treat our pets like family members as someone who has two pets that I feel like are basically my family members. Um, that is a really powerful threat from an abuser to say, if you leave me, I'm killing the dogs, right? So to have that and to say, to really use those pets as a manipulation tool is really effective and really powerful. So we need to be aware that those pets can really play a role in manipulation from the perspective of the perpetrator. And so we need to be helping that part from the perspective of the victim. We also know that there are huge financial costs into partner violence. Upwards of $4 billion spent on direct medical and mental health services. Again, when you see patients, often we're putting a Band-Aid on the issue and they're continuously coming back because the main issue is the violence in their relationship. And it's estimated that victims use medical services six times more often than the average patient. So these are what we call frequent flyers in the medical community. So they're coming back a lot um, because their key issue is not being addressed. So a couple take home messages about IPV and children. IPV is prevalent, it's one in three women, so it's out there. And when there is IPV, there are usually children present. There are usually children there. When they're exposed to IPV, they're also likely exposed to other forms of adversity, so either child maltreatment or other kinds. Um, and they can experience all kinds of disruptions throughout the life course as a result of being exposed to IPV. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Ashley. Thank you. So, um, hi, I'm Ashley Starfrischeff from Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And um, before I start on my portion, which is the role of health providers, um, I just want to ask who in the crowd already talks or has resources um, for your patients or families about healthy relationships. It's okay if you don't. All right, so hopefully by the end of today, um, it will kind of help people feel that kind of urge to incorporate this talk about what healthy relationships are. And I personally think that you guys really are the most important people that we can educate and that you can help us in this kind of fight against um, against all these issues that Susie talked about. So you guys are on the front line. You're working with the children that are growing up in homes where they see abuse and they think this is normal. Um, so being able to talk with them about what healthy relationships are, being able to talk with their parents, letting them know that there's resources out there that could save their life, a friend's life, just knowing it from the ground up was really important. So you guys are a really important key. Um, so I hope that this will be helpful for you guys. So, let's see. so the role of health professionals. So what we've been doing at um, Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence is working across the state to see, you know, why aren't we talking about healthy relationships? What is it that we can do to help you guys? Um, a lot of things we heard were, you know, they're very uncomfortable with, what if I get a positive disclosure? How do I document that? And what are my mandated reporting opportunities? That's one big concern. Other things, obviously time, people have a billion other questions they have to ask, a billion other things they have to do. Um, and then a lot of people, we do hear frustration with, you know, I've tried to help this person and they've gone back, um, which is common within domestic violence because unfortunately, like Susie talked about, we have all these links. So maybe when we're thinking you should just leave, 
that person's worried about how am I going to afford apartment on my own? How am I going to afford things for my kids? Like if I asked all of you today to leave right now, do you have your passports? Do you have your kids, your meds, all the things that you would need to do just to leave? Like we think they maybe should. Um, those are things that they're worried about. So a lot of times people get frustrated with the fact that people return. Um, so what we have been working on is trying to make sure that we can give you guys as health professionals a resource to help um, kind of screen and talk about health relationships. So this is a recommended screening um, that we use throughout the state and it's recommended by all of the academies and associations uh, listed below. And the biggest take home there is that we're asking that people talk about health relationships, that you ask this question, no matter if there are any signs or symptoms present. Because like Susie talked about, a lot of times you're not gonna physically see something. If that person has just been abused the other day and they have marks, they're most likely canceling that appointment to talk with you. Or they're gonna do their best to wear the high you know, scarves, the turtlenecks, those type of things. Um, so asking everyone, just like we were already aware that we're gonna be asked, do you drink, do you smoke? making it clear that every time you see someone, you're gonna ask about relationships as well. So uh, what we have found through this is that women who talk to their health providers um, are four times more likely to use an intervention. And this is um, becoming even more and more prevalent. I think as we've done this the past two years, I've seen a much higher rate of individuals coming forward. Also staff members being able to come forward, talking, getting these resources. So opening up that conversation just makes it more comfortable, makes people feel, um, ready to, to take on um, these scary kind of ideas of leaving or how are they gonna do these things. So the screen that we use is called Education Every Time for the purpose of the fact that we would like you guys to educate every single time on uh, what healthy relationships are. So we'll, I'll go through all the steps and if anyone has questions, uh, we can obviously answer them at the end. But um, what I want people to take home from this is that every area, every practice is different. So please, you know, take what you can from these, from these slides. If you have questions, reach out to Susie or I, we can help work with you for what your setting entails. Um, there's always a, a good resource or, or way that we can help you uh, make sure that you get resources for your, for your centers. And at the end of the day, there are always IPV advocates. So this is the biggest take home that I can give you is please, know that there's a statewide hotline that's available 24 seven. Um, so if you, if you have questions or if you have a patient or a family member who needs resources, they're available, they're free, they're confidential, they're not attached to DCF, they are not attached to law enforcement and they are not attached to immigration. They're there to meet the victim where they're at or to talk with you guys um, to see what, you know, what they can do to help with resources. So the first step that we ask health professionals to utilize is if you can, please separate the individual um, in order to make sure that you're educating them or talking with them about, you know, intimate partner violence or about healthy relationships alone. The reason for that, a lot of times we see people coming in with the abuser or maybe you have someone who's in there and, uh, you know, someone else is speaking for them instead of the actual patient. So, um, asking everyone that you're gonna to ask to see the person alone. So in your um, situation where you're in pediatric setting, if there's children under the age of three, uh, we recommend that they can stay in the room and you can please screen uh, the parent for um, the questions that we'll talk about. If they're over three, if there's a way that you can separate them, work with your team on how you can, you know, pull them out for a little bit, just to talk with the parent quickly. Um, we think that, that that's the best way to do it. And then our you know, my most important thing I think lately has been to remember that whenever you feel it's appropriate when you're working with maybe the teenage age group, whenever you feel it's appropriate, please start screening them as well. Uh, we have cards out there that um, we left on the table. Some of them say hanging out or hooking up. These can be used for teens, just an easy way to get them education on what is a healthy relationship, uh, making sure that they are also getting these resources. Because at the end of the day, if they're going through you know, a tumultuous relationship, they don't know what resources are out there, or maybe they've seen a parent go through this. If they know that there's a free confidential hotline um, that they can talk to, that, that might be a helpful resource for them. Okay, um, so then the second part is whenever you're trying to um, initiate talking about healthy relationships, we encourage people to kind of frame it because what we found is that if we are just going straight in and saying, you know, is there anyone in your life who's hurting or threatening you? 
that people are thinking that you're targeting them. You know, you think I'm abused. So if you have separated that parent and you're able to talk with them, just letting them know that we started asking all of our um, patients, family members about healthy relationships because it has such a large impact on your health or your child's health. A lot of times that, that's very important for someone to hear that this is going to not only, that what might be going on in their life is affecting them, but it's also affecting their kids. Like Susie said, the kids know what's going on. A lot of times parents think they're doing their best to you know, hide that or they're taking the brunt of that abuse, um, but letting them know that it has such a, a, a heavy impact on health. A lot of times I have providers call us um, for statistics that they, they can use specific to that situation. So we can get you any of those resources so you can kind of just start a conversation with them, making it feel like you're not obviously just targeting them because um, you feel as though they're abused, but you're asking everyone about healthy relationships. And obviously, as you guys already know, uh, making sure that you review your confidentiality because you don't want them, if they do disclose, you don't want them to be surprised that you have to make a report. So reviewing with them again, um, making sure that they know that you, um, this is confidential, but you know, if they admit that there's anything where children, elders, or their harm to themselves is involved, that you do have to make a report. Uh, one big reminder that I always try to emphasize is that intimate partner violence in and of itself is not a mandated reporting opportunity. So if there's someone who admits that they have been abused while holding their child, obviously it's a situation where you need to explain to the person that you're gonna to have to make a DCF referral um, and we'll talk more about but being able to explain that upfront the way that kind of fear or that um, kind of surprise when you do have to tell them what your next step is um, and then that leads to less trust less wanting to come back so being able to make sure that you review that from the start so the universal question that we're asking people to ask um, is is there anyone in your life who's hurting or threatening you in any way the reason for this question is I don't know if anyone here asks um, do you feel safe in your home? But we had a lot of people asking that question, which is, is a great question, but what it was doing was helping people think, you know, do I like where I live or do I like the environment? Um, do I feel safe where I live? And it wasn't giving them an opportunity to open up about anything to do with relationships. So we were almost surpassing that, um, that intervention opportunity. So is there anyone in your life who's hurting or threatening you in any way? Just get straight to the point um, and hopefully can be a question that you can incorporate into your practice. So through that question, um, please do not be concerned if you never have anyone disclosed to you. Disclosure is not the goal. And most people did not come in there um, to talk to you about anything to do with abuse. Um, so the biggest take home we can give you is, is try not to be discouraged if you're not getting people disclosing or if it feels like it's not going anywhere. You're doing the best thing you can do by opening up that conversation and giving them educational resources. So because disclosure is not the goal, um, what we want to do is give you resources for both situations. So if there is not a disclosure, um, what you can do to help educate people on what healthy relationships are. If there is a disclosure, trying to reel uh, your uh, initial emotions in. A lot of times we think, you know, you need to get out of there right now. Like, this is crazy. But um, trying to reel that in, making sure that you're letting them know that you know, there's others that, you know, this is something that is very common, you're worried about their safety, um, that you're here for them, making sure to give them a little bit of time. A lot of times if you do get a disclosure from a parent or from a kid who's in an abusive relationship, um, is you'll start to see that verbal vomit. Um, they'll start to give out those reasons as to why you know, they're sorry or they're, this is why I haven't left. So you'll start to get a little bit more pieces to that puzzle rather than just you know, the fact that this person's staying in something that is not healthy. So um, giving them that opportunity to speak is very important. Um, if you have someone who is annoyed that you even asked the question um, or is saying, you know, no, I have no one in my life that hurts me or threatens me, um, thanking them for talking with you. And obviously, if you can, giving them a little education. So we have all these outside. Um, they're just little pamphlets. They explain what healthy relationships are. Um, if you can give this to every patient, you could be helping them. You could be helping a family member. Um, they could throw it away. That's fine too. But you know, if if in the case that they do need it, explaining to them that 
you know, our state has these hotlines that are there. They're, they're not attached to anyone. They don't even have to say their name if they're not comfortable. If they just want to ask a question, well, I have a friend at high school who's in a bad relationship. I just want to know if I can get resources. Um, they don't have to say their name. They can call. They can take this home. They can give it to a friend or a family member. Um, sometimes you can, if you want, you can give them two. Um, or giving them to parents who maybe say they don't need it, but maybe one day they might. So it's a helpful resource, especially for people who have lost trust in um, police or are fearful of DCF. So they're not seeking resources. They're just continuing to live in this you know, bad cycle. So that's an important resource. If you do get a positive disclosure, um, again, you want to validate the fact that they're not alone. There's resources out there. Let them talk. The best thing that you can do is get them on the phone right then and there with an advocate. So if you have a teen or a parent who discloses, um, letting them know that you know of this hotline in the state, that you have resources for them, um, and that they can talk, they don't even have to say their name, but that we wanna connect them right then and there. Please, please use um, an office phone, not their cell phone. We have countless numbers of people who come in and tell me, you know, I was severely, abused or you know things got really bad because they saw a random number in my phone and they don't know who that is and leading to extreme jealousy stuff like that so making sure you're using an office phone is very important but if you can get them on the phone right then and there we're seeing about 90 percent of those people are actually taking that next step to get the resources that they need um, and it doesn't mean that they have to leave right then and there it just means that they're starting that safety planning that susie talked about they're starting to know that there's resources out there especially for people who have kind of lost trust in, you know, the police or something like that. So knowing that that resource is out there and you can stay in the room with them if they're comfortable. If not, you can let them um, have the room, take the time to talk with that advocate, uh, making sure that they get those resources. Um, another uh, thing that you can do if they refuse. So if you have someone who gives a positive disclosure, but they refuse, um, they don't want to talk to the advocate, making sure, like we said, that you can give them one of these so they know this number exists. If you're very fearful of um, what they've disclosed to you or they just don't want resources right now, we do also have, I'll leave them out in front, um, little cards that have our number on them, but they don't say anything about domestic violence. So they can fold that up, put it in their shoe or their bra, um, take that home so that they have that resource. We also, for people who disclose or maybe aren't ready to disclose, we have tear-offs. These are really helpful. Um, you can put them in every exam room and you can put them in bathrooms. These fly off the shelves lately, um, especially for the teenage population who maybe just aren't sure and they don't want to talk to anyone about it. So being able to have these, um, I left a pile up front in Spanish and English, but we can always get you more of those. They're just an easy way for you to get resources to people. So um, just for the pediatric side of things, if a mother screens positive at a pediatric appointment, um, making sure that you ask about any injury to the children, other types of abuse, um, if the child is developmentally able, talking to them separately, and if reasonable suspicion of abuse and neglect is, a, is there, um, making sure that you remind them of your, um, your mandated reporting opportunities and then making sure to make that report with them. So when you, if you do have to report to DCF, if there's, or if you are, um, if you're nervous about a situation, you're not totally sure if it's a mandated reporting opportunity, the number one thing I can tell you is call the IPB advocate, get them on the phone right then and there, let the person that just admitted that to you know that as a professional, you have a mandated reporting opportunity, you just wanna run this by, they'll talk with the IPB advocate and they can help them write and make out that report with you. What that does is gives that person who is someone who just admitted that they've been abused, it gives them a resource as well. Because unfortunately, a lot of times when we see someone having to get thrown into, um, you know, they just disclosed their abuse, now they're in with DCF. Unfortunately, a lot of times they don't really have a resource for themselves as well. We need to remember that they're still the victim in this, in this case. So giving them a resource as well. So anytime you are calling DCF, giving that person that resource is extremely helpful. Because a lot of times the report of DCF infuriates the abuser, causes problems when they get back home. So having that resource, knowing that that number is out there that they can call, that they have all these resources is very helpful. Um, and then important things with documentation. So one thing that I can definitely emphasize is if you do document anything, if you have someone who has disclosed, making sure it's in a private and secure place, especially nowadays where people can go home and check their medical records, making sure that that's secure. I can't tell you how many victims we have who have 
reported that their abuser has access to that account or has seen things or didn't even know they were going to that appointment. So making sure you're reviewing with that person. A lot of times it's helpful to even review, you know, who's your emergency contact? Who has access to your child's chart? Making sure that they know and review all those things with someone in your office. Um, that can be very important, especially if maybe they don't want that bill sent to their house, making sure they have a secure place where you can send that or call them, um, especially when children are involved because unfortunately both usually do have access to those charts. Um, and then again, I can't emphasize enough the importance of the role that, the important role that advocates play. Um, so please remember that that resource is out there for you and for your patients, for um, anyone that needs resources. If you have a question, like how do I document this so I make sure that everything is okay, or how do I um, explore other options, utilize that IPV advocate. They're there 24-7, um, free confidential. And they can help with those things that people are fearing or the reasons they're not leaving. Um, we have a housing grant now called Rapid Rehousing for Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Victims. Um, we have children's programs, one-on-one -on -one supports. All those things are available through calling the hotline. Um, and again, this is our chart. We have 18 centers across the state. All have um, emergency shelters. All have all the things listed on the side, the counseling support groups um, for children and for adults. They all have a 24-7 advocate available. So please utilize um, that resource. And as of November 1st, we've actually consolidated all of these hotlines. Um, so the hotline on the bottom, 888-774-2900, is our statewide hotline. Um, so you can call that number and they will direct you um, to the resources that you need. And we also now have the opportunity for you to contact us through, it's called Safe Connect. So it's ctsafeconnect.org and you can actually live chat with an advocate. Um, you can text them if you don't feel comfortable calling. Um, these are resources that we have seen a, a high uptick in health professionals using, which I'm really encouraged by. So please, if you ever have a question, you can um, access that through ctsafeconnect.org. Um, so basically what we can do is we ask that you guys work with your centers, work with us, um, work with the areas that you or the people you work with. Find someone who maybe wants to be um, the resource for this. We can work with them, get them all the things they need, get them all the tariffs, um, all the handouts that they want. We can work with you on that. And then making sure you're training all staff on this model because it does affect everyone. When someone comes in with an intimate partner violence issue, unfortunately, you know, you, it can affect everything in the office. Can, you know, people come in with abusers, stuff like that. So having everyone knowing that there's resources out there um, is, is very helpful to the entire process. If anyone has any questions, like I said, you can call the number anytime, 24 seven. Also, there's a, a bigger pamphlet out there that has my information if you ever need resources for your actual units. Um, and Susie and I are always available for any questions that anyone has. That's it. So thank you. Oh. Oh, and I said one slide at the end, um, just because I work at the Injury Prevention Center and we are actually engaged in a lot of different research projects about intimate partner violence. I just wanted to kind of just list them here, just so you're aware if you're interested. Um, we have a few pro projects screening um, using tablets to screen at Children's and also at Hartford Hospital. I'm working with some colleagues at UConn Health um, on the study I mentioned where I'm interviewing moms, the Adaptation and Resilience in Childhood. Um, the FKBP5 study I referred to, that was the, um, the study with pregnant women that we're doing with Hartford Hospital. We're collaborating really closely with GCF. We've been on that project for about five years to help with how they're providing services for families impacted by intimate partner violence. We're also training all the new nurse residents at Hartford Hospital on an enhanced intimate partner violence curriculum to try to help them to get engaged in this work. We're also training hair salon stylists. We know that these are an important relationship that people are building with salons. Um, we're training judges and we also do ongoing training and education. So I just wanted to put that up there so you know what we're doing. All right. Thank you. Thanks. So Susie and Ashley, thanks for a great uh, presentation on what is really a vexing problem. Uh, Ashley, this question is for you. We've been routinely screening for intimate partner violence in the pediatric surgery clinic for the last year and a half and using a validated tablet-based screening tool. And about 5%, 10% of our patient population screens positive for intimate partner violence. The challenge we have is those positive screens hardly any of those women take advantage of the opportunity to speak with one of the social workers here at the Children's Hospital. Any recommendations or suggestions for us on how we can get those women who are 
screening positive for intimate partner violence to take advantage of the resources here at the Children's Hospital? Yeah, actually. So um, one resource that obviously is easy is being able to make sure that they take one of these. I know it sounds like you're not doing anything, but it, it is helpful. Another resource that we have done, we've trialed this with Women's Health Connecticut for the past two years, is they had one staff come get trained with us as um, intimate partner violent advocates. So they're still doing their job on site. But when there is a positive disclosure, um, what a staff member at your clinic can say is, um, you know, Carrie, who's right down the hall, works in our office, can just sit with you and talk with you if you don't mind. Um, she has resources. So it's a little bit more of a warm handoff than the fear of like, if I go to a social worker, what does that mean for my kids or my family? Um, kind of that unknown is where people really pull back. Even with those advocates we've had on site, um, when they've maybe had a more severe situation and they've suggested calling, people recoil very quickly and don't want to do it. So being able to have that person right on site who can at least talk with them, make them more comfortable. We've had a lot of those patients want to come back, stay within the umbrella of children's, you know, stay within the medical setting because they feel more trusted, like there's someone they can talk to. So that's one option. They, you can um, contact me anytime. We have every two months we train IPV advocates. It's a two-day training, and um, then they're just the, kind of that on-site resource, that kind of expert at your office. So that's one option. Any other questions? So, so thank you for you know just really uh, an enlightening grand rounds. I mean, uh, scary you know in so many ways. I mean, the, and so many women have been murdered is is just uh, astonishing to me. Uh, the you know although this is healthcare environment and you're you're training healthcare providers, I imagine uh, there there's a bigger impact if the entire population is aware of it because of the points of contact. Uh, so can you give us some some insight even on the on the on the job place that you know at, at our workplace where, where we may have we're, we're in contact with many people that work with us you know how do you how do you engage that component of let's say Connecticut children so that we are paying attention to the people that work at Connecticut children's and and we ask those questions in a way that is not intrusive that that actually brings brings it out in some way that is not necessarily in the healthcare environment um, so I don't know if I'm answering this exactly how you're asking, but um, I think a great way is being able to have these resources around the office. So like we have posters, things like that, or um, these tear offs. What we found is, like I said, not only were we having patients and family members coming forward, we we're having a ton of staff come forward because it was kind of the culture around talking about healthy relationships was just there more, you know, you know, it's just more in the in their system. They had the resources, just knowing that that's out there. So um, actually through putting up these um, within even employee bathrooms, stuff like that, they at least know the resources out there um, and offering those pamphlets or things like that to make it kind of an open culture so that everyone knows. That's why we do encourage, if you can, being able to educate everyone or we can come in anytime and educate everyone in the office just so everyone does have that resource because everyone has a friend who's been affected. Everyone has, especially in healthcare, we do unfortunately see a really high rate of individuals who have been through these situations. So um, letting them know as well that you have policies and I know Harvard Healthcare has a really good, um, I don't know what Children's has, but um, resource that they can help with them, you know, to move forward, but letting them know that this number exists is helpful not only to patients, but to, to family members as well. I know that um, the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence has actually done some work with corporations and work employers yeah. to work with them in a, from a systems perspective, um, you know, through human resources, security, and other resources within the organization to create a safer workplace culture for victims of intimate partner violence. So that might be something that our institution could explore. And I think, do you know, Ashley, within your office, who is leading that effort now? Yeah, so Karen Darmark, who is our CEO, she can be um, contacted directly about that, or you can contact me and I can let her know. But it has been really helpful because it helps teach um, organizations how to deal with restraining orders, or if they have um, a staff member who has a restraining order, how to to safely protect their entire staff as well through that um, protective order and stuff like that. So. Thank you. That was a great talk. I'm in primary care and seeing a lot of um, adolescent females. Um, and um, I'm not sure that screening question will resonate with them. And I'm wondering 
if you have any other tips. Um, I've had several of my long-term patients who, you know, three and four years into a great relationship are, you know, ending up in emergency rooms and um, abused. So uh, I, I've asked the questions, but don't get much, you know, back. So anything you can offer there. Yeah. So the best thing we, I say is a lot of times I have settings who say they don't even want to ask the question at all, which is totally fine. And actually, um, Futures Without Violence, which is like a nationwide resource, they actually encourage that you don't even have to do that if you don't want to, you don't have to ask. It's just, if you take the time to make it within your um, plan of care that you're just going to educate on healthy relationships, um, especially for teens, they seem to be more willing to have a conversation that doesn't feel directed or kind of blaming on them. Um, so if you can just open it up by saying, we've been talking to everyone about healthy relationships, so I just want to review some of the items on these cards. We do have one specific for teens. Um, we have how relationships affect your health, hanging out, hooking up, things that, you know, maybe they've never kind of had to talk about, but just kind of opening up a conversation. So you're running the show with, um, you know, what you want to educate them on, or you can pull statistics from the resources that we've talked about today. I think just being able to open up that conversation and letting them know that you're there. What we find is that usually the first few times you talk about it with them, they might not say anything. But it, at, over time, what we've seen is a really high increase in the amount of people who feel more comfortable each time it's asked um, to kind of maybe open up a little bit more or talk about not, not just talking about relationships, but talking about, well, healthy relationships can affect, you know, how you use your technology. That's a huge one lately. So talking to them about, you know, excessive texting or extreme jealousy over a Facebook post, that's not true. Well, that's not a relationship. People honestly don't know that nowadays. Um, so talking about simple things like that or reviewing all the types of ways that relationships can be affected. It's not just physical. A lot of times they're, like Susie said, well, I've never been hit, so I'm not abused, or I'm not in a bad relationship, I've never been hit. So talking to them, you know, just to let you know, healthy relationships include, you know, feeling, you know, not being talked down to, extreme jealousy, just letting them know, not necessarily questioning them, but just giving them that information. They're there with you for that time, so they at least might get a little bit of that information. And then if you can give them that number, letting them know that this is a number that they can have, that's the best thing you can do because a lot of times, yes, they're not willing to talk with you about it, but they might, when they go home, you know, utilize that resource on one of those bad days because um, they might not even be in a relationship the day that you talk with them, but it could come up down the pipe. So. And I just want to add to that, that it is really important that you talk to, that we talk to kids, teenagers about their relationships. People tend to think, well, those are just those early relationships don't really matter. They absolutely matter. I mean, that's where they're first sort of learning about relationships and what they feel like. And so we need to be paying attention to those relationships and helping them because they're not, they're not really getting a consistent message about what a relationship should feel like. And just as I want to highlight what Ashley said, Futures Without Violence, futureswithoutviolence.org. There are so many resources there that are really specific to adolescents too. So language is really important. If you ask them a question that doesn't sound right, like if you're asking them about their boyfriend or girlfriend, they will laugh at you, right? You, you need to use the right words. And so Futures Without Violence has tons of resources that are really specifically tailored to that audience. Okay, it's nine o'clock, so you know, Ashley and Susie, thank you very thank much you. for a fabulous grand round. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah.